Hi, travelers. On today's The Continental Sports Podcast, recurring guest Mahler Reidner, writer for the Cleveland Magazine. We talked to her why covering the Combine is no longer as good as it used to be. We talked to RJ Choppy from Dallas's 105.3 The Fan, comparing Midwest fans to Coastal fans, Dak Prescott, Kyrie Irving, and more. We finish up with Jeff Fletcher from the Orange County Registrar on why he thinks Shohei Otani's 2021 season was the most impressive season for any player in the history of the MLB and whether he thinks the Angels will make a playoff run this year. Make sure you check out the link tree in the description of this episode where you can find the links to our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter accounts, and more. You can listen to us on your travels on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and more. Today is March 3rd, 2023. This is the Continental Sports Podcast. And Justin, NFL offseason is already underway, and we already have interesting news to report before the combine even started. Well, yeah, uh, Jalen Carter was in a fatal, was arrested for a fatal crash. Um, he they turned himself in just a day before the combine. In very unfortunate news, uh, one of his teammates at Georgia in the accident passed away, and uh, you know it's an unfortunate situation for Jalen Carter as he's going to have to face this as before he gets into the combine and the draft. Do you think his draft capital goes down at all? I I don't think it does, and it's another example of how the NFL can look away from sins if a player is good enough. I mean, he was the number one pick before this all happened, and I think he'd probably still be at least top five in the league. And it's a shame because uh, for two reasons, and I already mentioned one, again, NFL turned a blind eye to talent, and two, no one's even talking about the deaths of the two young people that were involved in the, in the accident and his uh, and his teammate, uh, Devin Willock, and the team staffer, Chandler and LaCroix. So... Yeah, it's just it's a it's another example just of how it, if, if a player is talented enough, uh, you give it a week or two, and people kind of forget <laughs> what happened. Yeah, pretty much. That's what seems to happen uh, in the league. Well, combine starts tomorrow uh, officially. It started earlier this week. Uh, people arriving, some minor uh, positional players, uh, run throughs and things like that. But it, it really starts in bare bones tomorrow in Indianapolis as always. Uh, on today's show, we have, uh, Mahler Ridenauer, uh, talking more about the combine, uh, particularly why the combine isn't as good, uh, as it used to be in the past. So that was a very interesting interview, but I want to get more into the combine. And, uh, if there's any particular player that you're excited to watch. Well, player, I am specifically excited to watch for the combine would be would be the quarterbacks. So Bryce Young, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the quarterbacks do at the combine. Uh, are they going to be? Are they going to their draft stock going to go up or go down? Because there is teams and a lot of teams in the NFL need a quarterback right now. So Bryce Young could be. He could be an example, or even Christian Gonzalez is another player out of Oregon. So he's a cornerback, 
and he looks he looks to be the best cornerback in this draft. Absolutely, yeah. And we had we had Dick Fane on last week, and he actually mentioned some concerns about Bryce Young being basically a Tua Tagovailoa uh, part two, and uh, just a short quarterback who doesn't have a whole lot of um, this a short quarterback that's prone to injury. He's he was afraid of, and that he was afraid that. Bryce Young shows potential in college, but might not be someone that's going to really carry the torch in the NFL as much. But I'll tell you, the person I'm actually interested in uh, looking at this year in the combine is not someone that anyone's really talking about. I know it's one of the biggest quarterback polls that we've had in a long time, but somebody I used to, I'm really excited to see is Jacob Copeland from uh, Miami. I know a lot of people have been talking about him. He's a, he's a wide receiver uh, reported to run a sub uh, uh, 430 uh 40 yard dash and he cuts and runs routes extremely efficiently especially through the middle there uh so i'm I'm excited to see jacob copeland i know it's not really a name a lot of people are talking about right now but i spent a year in dc uh northern uh uh, virginia there for a little bit there and then the maryland so in that whole area so i'm excited i've been watching him for a long time i saw him uh like i said last year he's incredibly fast he runs routes, like I said, extremely well. I think he's going to do really well in the NFL, and I think he's a name that you can definitely watch out for uh, going into uh, this week's draft. Because everyone's talking about the quarterback, but no one really talked about any of the positional players uh, this draft, uh, given just how heavy the quarterback uh, pull is this year in the draft, especially with all the free agents, too. It's such a uh, big, big um, quarterback-heavy offseason. Just, you know, Derek Carr... Aaron Rodgers potentially, Lamar Jackson potentially, uh, even Daniel Jones. Uh, we can add in there. There, yeah, I was going to say his name was escaping me. Uh, Daniel Jones potentially. I think he'll get re-signed, but yeah, he's a, he's also a potential free agent. But another thing I want to mention too is no one's really. It, it's a really heavy running back uh, free agency this year. I mean, you got Devin Singletary, Barkley, Josh Jacobs, Tony Pollard, Rashad Penny. Jamar Williams, Kareem Hunt, Dante Foreman. You got it's a really, um, really big running back pool this year. And it's what is there any team in particular, Justin, that you can say that would need a running back right now? A team that would need a running back right now would probably be put you on the spot. I I would say New England. I mean, they definitely yeah. need. I'm sorry. Yeah. Hello? Yeah, no, I agree. No, New England for sure. Um, I, I was going to also say uh, maybe the Cowboys. I know uh, McCarthy is taking over positioning now for the, uh, coaching, uh, well, play calling. So uh, this just this past week, McCarthy came out saying that he'll be the play caller now for the offense and no longer will be Kellen Moore uh, going to the – Kellen Moore went to the Chargers that we all know. Uh, shortly after he, they lost to the 49ers in the playoffs. Kellen Moore, as well as the Q-back, uh, quarterback coach, left uh, Dallas. And McCarthy has come out this week saying that he is actually going to take over play calling for the Cowboys. And he one of the main things he said is that he wants to run the ball a whole lot more than they've been doing. Uh, he wants to keep the defense out of the field or off the field a lot longer than they were this year. And he wants to run the ball more. And so I think that's, uh, I mean, I know already know they have Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard, but I think another interesting um, 
An another interesting team that could use running back with that mindset would obviously be the Dallas Cowboys, but we'll see. We'll we'll see. What do you what do you think about McCarthy becoming the play caller for uh for the for the Cowboys? He did it in uh he did it in Green Bay when he was at Green Bay. We all saw how that happened. Um little you know, it was a little hit and miss at times. I mean, we all know Aaron Aaron Rodgers loves McCarthy, he thinks highly of him, but he definitely had some hit and miss times when he was in uh Green Bay. Uh, how do you think he'll do, especially given his concerns with uh, clock management? Well, he calls a lot of conservative plays. You know, he's a conservative play caller. And, you know, we're going to see how this Dallas offense adjusts, adjusts to this with Dak Prescott and potentially the running back situation, either Zeke Elliott or even Tony Pollard if they, they resign him. Um uh, that that it's only is it only for the offensive side or the defensive side? He's an offensive-minded coach. We know that, but for the defense, how is he going to handle that? Right. Yeah. And a, a, a conservative play caller, like you said, uh, Dak Prescott tied the year this year uh, in interceptions with um, um, Josh Allen. And that's with missing five games. So I think that's one of the biggest reasons McCarthy wants to take over is because he knows he's more of a conservative play caller. And he obviously wants to bring those interceptions down. And like I said, he really wants to keep the defense off the field more too. Um, it, it was interesting too, because I read a comment online how it said how offensive coordinators are very interested in having the best offense. They don't really consider the big picture of a, of a team. And McCarthy made a statement basically saying like, well, I do look at the big picture of the team. I don't just want the best offense. I just want the best team in the league. And so he, from that comment, I just kind of take from it. Like I've been saying how he wants to keep the, he wants to keep the defense in mind. It's not that he just, he doesn't just want an explosive offense. He also just wants to win whatever it takes. And if that means running the ball for, you know, how many plays a game for a majority of the game, then he's going to do that as long as it's effective. And I think that's why running back again would be really important for Dallas uh, this offseason to pick up. Uh, first first play caller, uh, first head coach to call plays, excuse me, since Jason Garrett in 2012. So it's been a long time. It's been over 10 years since they've had that dynamic in Dallas. And it'll be, it'll be interesting to see, like I said, especially with his, uh, we know that he he's had struggles with uh, the clock management in the past. So it'll be interesting to see how that all works out. All works out this year. Um, so let's, uh, I want to switch to baseball now. Completely switch gears. We'll go uh, from Dallas area and then to, to Arizona and, and Florida. So training camp's officially underway. Um, we we have Jeff Fletcher on later to talk some baseball. Shohei Itane and the Angels. Uh, but, you know, I want to I give, give our thoughts on the training camp real fast. I don't think we really were had a chance to do that last show. It's uh the play call the, the 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 changes to the rules are already causing uh already causing some problems, <laughs> aren't they? Yeah. Well it's gonna take a little time to adjust to the new rules. I think the new rules are gonna be good for baseball. I think it's gonna speed up the pace of play. You know, I think that was the biggest complaints amongst amongst baseball fans is you know, how the time of the game. You know, especially a weeknight, you know, we're looking at that. You know, weeknight games could last from maybe 7 to 9.30 instead of 7 to 10, you know. And that'll be good for people that have work and school the next day and, and really can 
you know, just enjoy the game, you know, kind of instead of players, you know, basically pacing around the mound or, you know, mm-hmm. at the plate, basically adjusting their stance, their gloves, the whole thing. I think it's going to be good for baseball. I think this will speed up the pace of play. And, you know, it's a new era for the sport. And, you know, players are going to have to change to it, even some fans as well. But, um, yeah, I think this will be good for baseball. So is that your – would you say that's your most important rule change this year or the most um, interesting rule change is the pitch clock? I mean, I think a lot of people yeah. would say that. Batters uh, are going to be timed too, so – you know, yeah. they have to get in the, you know, they have eight seconds to step out of the box, you know, and then if they're not ready, they get called strike three. I mean, that's what happened in the Red Sox versus Braves game uh, this past Friday. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, because to, to go off that, the rule officially is that the bat, the batter has to be inside the batter's box within yes. the eight second time limit. And so I'm wondering how long it's going to take until they start doing instant replays to see whether a batter is even in the box and how ridiculous it might get. Because, you know, whenever, whenever you do something as dynamic as this, and especially in baseball, that is so, I mean, you're, you're always looking for an edge in baseball. I mean, the, it's a slower paced game. And so there's a lot more opportunities to find that edge. I'm just curious if this is going to, you know, come back to bite baseball in the butt a little bit because I, like i said i can already see teams finding ways to uh take advantage of these roles i mean like i said the no no infielder shifting is a is a role that also came out this year and basically what it what it alludes to is that you must have four infielders in the infield or yeah it must have four players inside the infield at all times and you can't uh switch infields in and out from the outfield based on the batter and, you know, you can already see people taking advantage of that. Like people might be leading off and uh, starting to shift, you know, after a pitch to get an advantage, uh, taking advantage that way. Um, like I said, I think it's going to get, it can get really dicey with the pitch clock. I mean, I wonder how long it's going to take for pitchers to start complaining about their arms hurting more. Or like I said, will we get ridiculous with the batters, whether they're in the bat- batter's box or not. And I think, you know, I think right now in the training camp, it's going okay. I think no one's really complaining about the role changes yet. For the most part, we've had definitely some instances, but it's going to be interesting to see when the games start to matter. Because right now, I think a lot of people are saying like, oh, the role changes are fine. No one's complaining. It's Everyone's playing the game great, and they're all getting along and all that stuff. But the games also don't matter, and I think people kind of forget about that. And it'll be interesting to see, like I said, once the games do start to matter, and especially, especially once you get even more um, bigger games, like as you get into September or uh, even, yeah, like late late September, you know, when playoff positioning are, is on the line. Yeah, and to reiterate what you were saying about challenging, you know, if the players stepped out of the box for for over eight seconds and reviewing, you know, that, that could get a little bit crazy. I mean, it's kind of like a challenge in, in football, but it's going to be, you know, it's, it's like, come on, you know, you don't want to challenge that kind of thing. I mean, you know, I think it'll be a little hard to adjust, as I said, but I, I think it's better for the sport. You know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of it. You know, I think the shift, 
you know, it's it's a defensive strategy. It's kind of like a defensive strategy oh, yeah. in football. But I think, you know, I it's not just about the shift to me. And I think it's not just about the shift to that average fan uh, who, who goes to the game or who watches the game. You know, as I said, on a weeknight, you know, they're going to be, I mean, you know, people have to go to work and school the next day. So the offense will definitely be better. There's no doubt. I mean, the infield it shifting will. will. The reason for the infield shifting, I didn't know this. I, I had to look this up because I'm not a seam head by any means. So I, I definitely had to look this up. The reason actually for the lack of infield shifting, what you were just alluding to too, Justin, is that uh, it's going to prevent players avoiding line drives. And so basically what I read and what was happening is that uh, players, the batters were going more for bunts and pop-ups uh, because having a line drive was so difficult with these infield shifts and, and putting more people into the outfield. So they're hoping with the with with avoiding you know they're hoping to avoid that and hoping for more scoring opportunities basically and with the bigger bases as well as the last major role change that happened this year there's gonna be a lot more steals and at least more a lot more stolen base attempts so I you know after the year's all done or even a month or two from now as we get more data you'll definitely you'll definitely see a higher score average per game uh, and it's gonna be good I mean I think baseball is finally getting more to what America wants to see, which is shorter games and higher scoring. And I think it's going to be good for baseball, like you said, and I think it will uh, ultimately um, go well for, for the uh, MLB. Another uh, another league making changes is the PGA. PGA is also trying to get with the times, uh, basically trying to emulate the Live Tour a little bit. Um, they just announced this week in a memo that they're going to have eight events with smaller fields and no cuts uh, starting in 2024. Uh, and basically what they're doing is that these events, they, they want to entice people, they want to entice the best players to play at these events. Because what, uh, what they were saying, what they were seeing the PGA Tour, especially with the Live Tour coming out, was that players were skipping a lot of events, especially in between majors or when they were close to majors or in between the bigger events. So... This is going to incite the bigger players to play, and it's going to also, uh, yeah, um, kind of try to keep the players from leaving the PGA Tour and going to the Live Tour. Well, the PGA, as you just said, just wants to prevent guys from going to the Live Tour. You know, I think that the PGA is getting with the times, and uh, you know, they want to they they want to basically increase their revenue among the players and the fans as well. Uh, you know, and, and I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be interesting to see for golf. You know, we have all these rule changes in golf and baseball, and even just a quick thing about football too, Eagles proposed a rule change on fourth and 15. Let me just pull that up here uh, for instead of onside kicks. So the NFL, really the Eagles are the team proposing the fourth and 15 rule going to be different so yeah they just so they proposed it at first back in 2021 so the fourth and 15 rule will be basically instead of an onside kick they'll get an extra play you know I I think that could be exciting you know that's yeah. you know the owners haven't had their meeting yet in the NFL but you know you have all these rule changes going on 
in professional sports. And, you know, it could be bad, but it also could speed up the pace of play in, in both, in all sports that we're talking about. Well, it's all analogous to, you know, you can, you can, you can make an analogy to like, say, an iPhone, right? iPhone has to change every single year in order to account for what the people actually want. And it happens a little bit slower in sports, obviously, because you can't make any dramatic changes because fans are used to something for so long. And when you change that, they're not going to be very happy. But it, it is the same kind of principle is that sports have to continually evolve in their role changes and they have to continually meet what the fans are asking for. And I think baseball this year, golf coming up and even football, we'll see. I mean, we have been seeing role changes in football it's all just adapting to what the fans want and, you know, not allowing the competitors to take over. I mean, we see it with the live tour, the PGA uh, MLB, of course has I mean, many competitors, not that, you know, they have a lot of minor leagues and, you know, the, the, the Japan league or leagues overseas, the smaller leagues, not that they're really in trouble with, with those leagues per se, but the whole point is that they want to stay that way. They don't want to get complacent to the point where, who knows, maybe 15 years from now, the smaller leagues do start to gain more of attraction and they lose their fan base, which ultimately means losing money. So they just don't want that to happen. And so it's just all about uh, staying relevant and staying, uh, keeping the fans what they give, giving the fans what they want. That's also true kind of with the NFL. I mean, I know you have the XFL and the USFL, but really, I mean, for the NFL, they're basically you know, the kings of this whole thing. They're the kings of football and, and even professional sport. It's just the most popular sport in America, for sure. Absolutely. Well, so on today's show, we have uh, RJ Choppy from Dallas Radio uh, coming on the show to talk about the Dallas sports fans, talking some uh, Dak Prescott, as we were alluding to earlier, Kyrie Irving, will he stay uh, in Dallas after this year or will he go? And then we also have some comments that Byron Jones, former uh, Dallas Cowboy, uh, said this uh, this week concerning uh, the medical staff about the uh, in, of, of the coaching, the medical staff of NFL teams. So that'll be interesting. We'll talk to him about that. Uh, we also have uh, Marla Marla Ridauer, a recurring guest from the show, coming back on to talk about the NFL Combine, uh, specifically comparing the NFL Combine of today with the NFL Combine of the past. And why uh, why it might be better in the past than it was than it is today, especially from uh, the media standpoint. And we'll finish with uh, Jeff Fletcher uh, talking about his book on Shohei Itani, uh in his uh, record breaking season that he had in 2021. And we'll also get into the Angels a little bit about what they have to do uh, going forward to uh, make the playoffs and maybe even make a playoff run this year. Uh, his response to what do you think the Angels will do uh, might surprise you. So. Stick around, we have a good show, and uh, we'll be back after this short break. All right, we now welcome on our first record recurring guest of the show, uh, Marla Reinauer. From a former uh, columnist for the Akron Beacon Journal and a contributor to the Cleveland Magazine now. How are you doing, Marla? Great, thanks. Great. Yeah, well, we're welcome to have you on again. Had you on about three weeks ago in our first episode, and uh, 
we knew we would have you on again to talk some combine. Uh, we, we know that the combine is your favorite thing to talk about, the, thing, the favorite thing you've covered throughout your career. Um, started back in the 1980s, early 1980s, and had had a long progression since then. Uh, back back in the old days, uh, you know, when it first started, I think you you started covering back in the 1990s. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, the first one I can remember going to, and that I'm not saying I wasn't before this, but it was 1997 when um, Tiki and Rondi Barber were coming out in the draft. I don't know why I remember them, but I I remember interviewing them, and we were in the lobby of this Holiday Inn, and there was probably, I bet you there weren't more than like 20 reporters there, and we were sitting on these couches in the lobby, and the People at the Holiday Inn came out and yelled at us because people were like sitting on the backs of the couches and they thought we were going to ruin them. So, I mean, I just thought now compared to the hundreds, if not thousands of people who uh, come to Indianapolis to cover this combine, it's just mind boggling how big of an event it's it's become since then. Well, first, the, the first time ever on tv was in 2004 am i correct that's the first that's what i read earlier that it was never televised until 2004 when nfl network became became a thing so until then it was it they never had any media coverage well they had media coverage but they didn't have video any any type of video or uh video recordings of any kind up until 2004 um and like i said since the nfl network came out at that time and uh, it's another thing I thought was interesting is that it's it's been in Indianapolis pretty much its entirety. I, I, the, the first couple of years, it it moved around a little bit from New Orleans and other places, but ever since 1985, uh, it's it's been in it's been in Indianapolis every single year. Now this might change. Uh, just this past off season, I think the commissioner and the owners decided to put put the combine up for a bidding process. Now Indianapolis did win it again this year, so it will be. It is in Indianapolis again this year, but I, I didn't know. I it's one of those things that the more I thought about it, I didn't even realize that Indiana, it wasn't Indianapolis every year. I just it's just one of those things that it just kind of slipped my mind. And the more that after I thought about it, I I remembered I never knew. I never I never I don't remember ever seeing it anywhere else besides Indianapolis. Yeah, I think it's been there every year since 1987. Although they didn't have it the one year for the pandemic, but I remember last year when. You know, this was kind of an issue when they were asking, you know, several of the coaches and GMs at the podium. I mean, there was an overwhelming groundswell of support that everyone thinks it should stay there. Obviously, the league kind of wants to make it this rotating event, you know, to, you know, get more fans involved and move it around the country. But everyone in the league likes it because it's a central location, you can walk around downtown. There's all these great bars and restaurants. Um, it's, I, I mean, I do think there will be some coaches who will be upset if, if, and you know, other GMs, owners, I mean, they, they, everyone seems to love it there just because it's, you don't need a car. There's so much to do at night. You know, the nightlife is good. Um, nice hotels. So we'll see if the league wins out on this one. Yeah, you're right. 1987, I see on my end. You're right. 1987 was the first year. Uh, it was in Indian in Indianapolis, <laughs> and uh, it's been it's been there ever since. 
And Lucas Oil Stadium, I thought was also interesting that I saw. It actually was built with the combine in mind. Uh, there's a lot of extra meeting spaces inside Lucas Oil Stadium, which I thought was really interesting to see. And another thing I saw was that apparently uh, they have a direct fiber optic connection to Indiana University Health Center <laughs> for to allow uh, real-time medical evaluations of like MRIs and x-rays and things. So I thought that was kind of cool. I, another reason why... Uh, above to the things you just said, why it, why it should stay in Indianapolis for the years to come. But like we said, we'll, it, we'll see what happens. It's now up to the bidding process every single year from now on out. But I think it should stay in Indianapolis just for the history itself. Well, like I said, there may be other economic factors that went out. But um, I the medical thing that you mentioned is one of the most important reasons, you know, that, that this is a big deal. I mean, this is where you, you know, you get kind of the like the the medical part and the interviews are that's the two most important things that happens at the combine the testing is just like you're they're going to go through these drills you know on their college campuses and all those kind of things but you know although you you can make your mark you know on the you know turf at lucas oil but um that is interesting about the medical thing because like i said that that's kind of a lot of you know, even if they, even if you come and decide not to work out, that medical part is extremely important. Yeah, and I always thought it was funny about the combine how we have so many, so much tape on these athletes, these college athletes, or you know, former college athletes, whatever they may be, coming into the combine. So I always thought it was interesting to have the combine. Uh, we already know so many about so many things about the players, but I think one of the most important things that you're alluding to is that medical side of it. Um, you know. A lot of things can be hidden uh, from the owners and from the scouts and things that might not be seen until firsthand when you actually evaluate them in person. And so that was one of the biggest reasons the combine, I think, became a thing was, like you said, I think the medical part really was the biggest issue I mean, the biggest reason for the combine to come into existence. Um, do you know why it's called the combine? I, I just learned this today and I, I thought it was kind of interesting. Are you are you aware? No, I've got one. I do. As much as I know about the combine, I do not know that. Yeah, so apparently it was, it started out in 1982, and it was the National Football Scouting Inc. hosted the Combine, and apparently it only had 16 teams, and there were two other companies that hosted the remaining teams, uh, Blesto and uh, Quadras, and they combined in 1985 to form one-to-one centralized uh, scouting event, and that's why it's called the Combine, and I thought that was kind of interesting, because I know... I never really realized that why it was called the combine. I always thought it was a funky little name. Uh, I don't. It doesn't have anything to do with football or scouting. But but yeah, it was a three organizations that all held separate teams up until the '85, and then and they, they combined literally. So <laughs> that was a little interesting. But yeah, yeah, and yeah. So another thing I thought was interesting was. Um, only 330 invitations are sent out every year. I always, that that seems low to me. I, I mean, I guess the more I think of it, it could make sense. But I always thought it was at least a thousand or so. And I mean, of course, we only hear about the biggest names and the names that everyone wants to hear about. But but yeah, beginning of the, beginning of the process, 250 invitations are sent out every year. And then uh, more invitations are sent out after the underclassmen uh, decision day um, is the, the deadline for that happened um yeah i always thought it was more more people than 330 but 
I guess, I guess not. It's an interesting number. It seems low to me. Well, I do feel, I feel like that's about as much as you could handle when it, when you think about the interviews. I mean, you know, you have these nights where these guys are spending, you know, a, I can't remember the, how much it is, 30 minutes or I don't know. You, you're going from room to room and getting interviewed by all these different teams. And it's, a, I, I really don't think you could, um, there's so much that happens and you have all the, you know, these drills and all that, you know, I, I just, I think it would be somewhat unwieldy. And, but I will say this, I mean, no, these teams d turn under every rock just because you're not invited to the combine. I don't, I mean, that's not going to doom these, these guys. There's been people that haven't, you know, been invited that have, you know, gone on to star in the league. So, um, that doesn't mean, you know, like that, that's not the kiss of death if you're not there. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, you also see some of these guys who are, have great work, these workout warriors who end up being a flop. So, I mean, I was looking at today, some of those guys who hold the records for the best bench press and those kind of things. I mean, a lot of them didn't even end up playing in the league. So um, if you've got talent, these this is like almost like a worldwide search now for talent. They're going to, the NFL is going to find you. Well, it's almost analogous to the G league and then the NBA where you have the fat, you've these really athletic guys that might not be the most talented at the actual sport itself. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of players in the G league that are more athletic just from a speed and strength uh, standpoint than a lot of those in the NBA. And I think it's a very analogous to the combine where yeah, you might be very, very fast and very strong, but you still have to have the skills. And I think that's another, you know, I, I just think it's really important for scouts, obviously, to be able to see that firsthand. Uh, the tape is great, but I think it really is a big difference when you can see things uh, firsthand and first and uh, upfront and personal. Um, I always, let me ask you this. So the the higher end names that come out of the combine every year, so the, the, the names that they know, they're getting drafted. Now, of course, the combine can help solidify where you are in that draft ranking, but did, did you ever get a sense that these players were annoyed that they had to be at the combine or thought the combine might be a waste of their time or risk of injury or, or anything like that? Those that knew that they were, they were going to be drafted and drafted very high, did they, did they ever get that sense from them? Because I think, like I said, the interviews are so important, even if you're not working out. I think they realize that. I mean, yeah, you know, some of these guys have met some NFL people at the Senior Bowl or, you know, so the East-West Shrine Game or those kind of things. But really, the medical and the interviews is so important. I think they realize that. Like, and I mean, I almost, I also feel like it's gotten such a, become such a big deal that a lot of these guys have really... I mean, almost like practice the, their interviewing skills. I mean, there's been some, you know, really impressive, you know, it's almost like I said, it's almost like they've gotten some tips from their probably most likely their agents on, you know, how to handle these interviews and how to, how to talk and how to win people over, you know, how to relate to people. I mean, I mean, granted, we've had some ones that some guys who are just very shy, but I really do be, think that that part of it is so important. I think these guys realize that if you're you're, you're going to have to do this to um, at yeah. least 
Even if you don't, like I said, run or throw or anything else. You forget how much of a brand, like how, how much branding matters in, in NFL teams. And I think that's part of the interview process. And because you get these athletes that are obviously very talented, very fast, strong, can play the position the best out of anyone that they are coming out of the draft with. But it, it really does show you just how important that brand is as well to an NFL team because the, the NFL owners want their brand they want their team to be liked, and if they're not liked, they're not going to be selling the tickets. They're not going to be selling the season tickets. So I think it's the interview process is what allows them to really help keep the public perception of their team um, good year after year. And it just shows you that it's not all all just about the talent. It's just it's really about they want to have uh, their fan base like the team too, in order for them to keep coming back. Well, yeah, I mean you're. Some of the, I mean, especially when, you know, the first like several rounds, you know, these guys are going to be the face of your franchise. I mean, it is a very um, important test. Um, and you also think about not only are they getting interviewed by the national media, I mean, the NFL network is there. I mean, it's so big now that colleges send people from, you know, they're like schools you know, the school, you know, sports information, you know, they're videoing for, you know, their social media, you know, it's like, it's, it's like you're talking for in front of all kind of different, you know, venue, you know, like I said, college, you know, professional media, the NFL, you're talking to scouts and owners and GMs and, you know, like head coaches and position coaches. I mean, it's really, I mean, it is kind of a whirlwind, but I do think you have, that's, that's a huge part of the, the NFL, like you said, the branding is huge. So I do feel like that's, that's why this is, that's almost becoming in my eyes, just as important as the medical issues right now. Just, is this the kind of person you want to be one of the faces of your franchise? Yeah. Speak about the, uh, there's the filming part of it because like I said, wasn't filmed. No film came out of the combine until 2004. It's obviously very hush hush. I mean, ESPN only started filming the combine. I think I, I 2019, I think I read were they, were they very, very cautious on the reporters inside the combine, like with their phones, uh, getting video and making sure that nothing really came out. That wasn't supposed to be coming out. Well, I know members of the, Pro football writers have been allowed to like watch the workouts um, for several years, but I mean, you do have to be approved to be one of those. Um, I don't know. I, I I'm pretty sure you have to sign something, but as far as I, I don't know, but I mean, it's almost like you're watching it for your own, not necessarily for a story, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, I, like I said, I've never done that. I, um, but it, you know, like you said, I mean, the the NFL Network launching launched in November two thousand and three, and that really has sort of, you know, I I think it's funny that it's not just Cleveland where you know the the draft is like a major, you know, it's like the Kentucky Derby or something. But I mean the the dawn of this being on television and able to watch these workouts. I mean, I know it seems crazy, but I mean, it is really something to see some of these big name players, 
you know, run the 40 or whatever. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm a draft geek, so I, I think it's really is kind of cool. So, um, but well, it's, that's, that has contributed to how big this thing has become. Well, it's almost like track and field, if you think about it. I mean, people like watching track and field for the same exact reason, just the pure athleticism. It's, there's not, you know, there's no ball involved. There's no stick and anything like that, but it's just, the, it's really just the showcase of pure athleticism. I've always liked watching the combine. Um, to be honest, I can't really tell you why. Like I said, it's not football, it's, it's, but it's just very high level athleticism and they, they do a very good job filming it too. It's very fast paced. There's no dead, dead air time. They, they go right, right from one workout to another. In, like I said, very good job of just covering it. They've always been very good at covering it. And I think it just makes it, it's one of those things you can just turn on for 10 minutes and turn off and then do something else and then come back later, watch it again for 15 minutes. You know, you watch the highlights now with social media, Twitter, Instagram, it's all over the place. And it, like I said, it, it really is analogous to track and field with me. Um, just, again, just watching that explosive athleticism. Um, to me, especially yeah, so, when then, it's a, when it's a big guy, like running a big, fast guy, I mean, that that's about as good as it gets when I'm watching one of those. So, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you said it wasn't always at Lucas Oil Stadium, right? It used to be at uh, – it, it still was in Indianapolis, but before Lucas Oil Stadium was built, I think it was at the Drozer Dome. Is that is that correct? And how far away was that from? Hoosier Dome. A Hoosier, oh, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, right. <laughs> the Hoosier, though, how far away was is that? Was that still in Indianapolis? No, that was I, I'm right. It was. it was right downtown. Still, it was just you know, like I said, not quite as nice a place. Um, but I mean, it has changed dramatically. Like, um, back when we back in its heyday, we um. They had like the media room, like in this hallway where everybody like walked to go to the workouts. And, you know, you would, if you weren't interviewing a player, you would be out there in the hallway and seeing all these people. And I mean, it was just now it's like, you're up in this ballroom. It's kind of far, you know, like it's not the same like traffic, you know, that you're getting when you, when you were, that was, that was, those were the great old days where you could just stand out there for hours and see everybody. Um, going in and out of the dome. Um, I mean, it, I mean, there were some guys, I mean, that e like agents would even bring guys who weren't invited to the combine and just hang out in that hallway because they knew that's where all the media were. And they would introduce, you know, some guys they thought were prospects, you know, to the media, even if, you know, they weren't invited to the combine. So, I mean, it was just, I mean, that's one of the things we all miss is when we, we don't have that hallway like we used to. Yeah, it's the NFL NFLcation, if you want, of of everything, right? It's it NFL has a way to make things not as big, very big, especially if they know people are getting more interested about it every year. So that's definitely another example of it. Um, and so yeah, I just I think the combine's really cool. It's underway. It's underway now. Um. Uh, already been great coverage and I, uh, i'm excited to see more of it as the week as the week goes along so well thanks marla this has been awesome uh anything else you want to add before we uh we head out i did want to just talk about what some of the reasons like some of the memories that why it was i thought it was the 
best thing I ever covered. Like, for example, um, one of my late friends used to cover the Denver Broncos, Linda Bruin, for the Rocky Mountain News. And so we would always hang out at the Westin, you know, looking for members of the Broncos. And we'd be sitting at the bar with John Elway's dad, Jack, and listening to stories from him from back in the day. And then we would go to this place, the Canterbury Hotel, which was famous. Mike Tyson made that place infamous. But the bar was one of the few places in Indy where you guys could smoke cigars. So we're sitting at the bar waiting for this guy who was one of the most famous, represented a lot of quarterbacks, agent, an agent. And but we'd be sitting at the bar next to me and Joe Green, who was coming there so we could smoke cigars. Um, you know, there were there were a lot of bars. One of them, the classic one, Ike and Jonesy's, just went out of business, like, I think at the end of 2019. But back before in the day before there were cell phone cameras, I mean, there would be coaches. I mean, I remember sitting, ordering a, a shot at the bar and Bill Cower is sitting right there and... I mean, Jerry Jones used to be out there on the dance floor. I mean, it was just, those were the good old, like I said, the good old days before cell phone cameras. It was just like, at night, Indianapolis was just so much fun. It's just like, obviously, social media, none, a lot of that stuff doesn't, you know, go on in, with, at least in the public eye anymore. But it was just uh, so many great memories and great fun. Um, there's still good places to go. Um the Slippery Noodle has got some of the best music and, you know, that I've ever heard in the U.S. And Harry and Izzy's is a great place. But um, like I said, that's why, you know, like if you ever run into anyone who's been in the NFL a long time, you should ask them a good combine story because everybody has one. Did you get a sense that, uh, and this might not even be a combine specific question, but did you get a sense that players and coaches were a lot more um, liberal and going out, like out out at night do, when when cell phones and social media were not a thing, because they felt more free to do so. Yeah, I mean that was kind of, this thing. Even though you're all, you know, it's kind of the, seemed to me like the place where everybody could let their hair down and kind of get. Yeah, you're working, but it's a little bit of a break from the you know the whole routine. I think everyone you know looked forward to going there. And I really do think, I mean, yeah, it's still fun and you get to see, you know, I mean, for us, I mean, you even see a lot of, you know, former Browns players who are now coaches who you you get to run into there. So, you know, it's still kind of like a great, like, place to catch up with people. But I do think it's, it's lost some of, some of the freedom of, because, you know, you have to, you know, guys, everyone is, everyone is much more careful now of what, you know, what, what goes on in public. So, mm -hmm. but those, like I said, those days back in the, in the nineties and the early two thousands before, you know, the, before all this came about, boy, it was like, it was, it was something that you look forward to, you know, all year long. Yeah. And it's like we said, I, I, I think that, com that that goes for a lot of things in sports, not just the combine and not just football. Everybody is a lot more hush-hush now. They're afraid to say something. They're afraid to even go out because those phones and social media everywhere you go. So I think uh, people have to just be a lot more careful when they go out and watch what they do and watch what they say. And so it, it really sounds like you, you like that intimate part of the combine where – 
people were a little less afraid of going out. They were more liberal about like being seen in public and what they said. And it, it it's a shame that it sounds like it's not really like that anymore at the combine. And maybe people keep it themselves more. Well, I still think people go out. It's just you know, it's not. It's the heyday is past. Um, um, but like I said, I I it, it's still it's still hurting me that I'm not there because I just feel like that was my thing. You know, I've always been loved writing, you know, features leading up to the draft. And I loved like interviewing the player, you know, even if the players are at a podium, I like talking to the players and like making my decisions on who I liked and who I wanted to follow for the rest of their career. And, you know, who really impressed me and, something they might say that might stick with you for, you know, forever. I mean, that's the part of it that I really liked. So um, I, I do miss not covering it anymore. Were you always surprised by the maturity of the young athletes that came out? Well, like I said, I do. As it's gone on and it's become more important, they are prepared. So, yeah, but mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, but like I said, I mean, some of the stories you run into at the combine, like, you know, guys who have had tragedies in their past or, you know, a tough upbringing or, you know, it, there's all kind of things that just when you have that many young men with the who want to tell their stories, I mean, they're, they're not always eager to get them out there, but some of them are, you know, they want to show it the, you know, kind of show the world what they've overcome. So, I mean, it's like, I, I mean, they do, they come there ready, ready to, you know, tell everyone who they are. And I, I just think that's part of what makes it so appealing. Well, Marla, I'll leave you at this point. It, it sounds like that never used to be a thing. The coaching, so to speak on, the interview process and the public image for the best of your knowledge when when does that become a thing with these young athletes in the sports media because i definitely remember just in the past just comparing the, i mean just comparing the past with the athletes that are coming out now especially the young athletes specifically there's there's definitely a difference in just how they hold themselves and it, it is interesting that you say that because i think if you look in the past and i'm not going to name specific names or specific examples but there definitely was on average a difference in the young athlete coming out of college, more mature, um, more just self-aware of the media and how important to have a good presence of themselves are. And so, I mean, was this something when, I mean, it was just something that happened, has been going on for a long time and we're just noticing it more. Have they always been coaching these athletes or is this something that really is more new in the last four, five, six, seven years? I can't put my finger on how far back it goes. Sure. It could be a decade, but I do think it's like I said, it's more emphasized by their agents who pro I'm sure they have, you know, hook them up with people to help them prepare. Um, the other thing is, you know, a lot of these big name guys, you know, the media has grown so much and they've been, they've been interviewed since they were in high school. So I think they're better at yeah. it because, you know, like I said, just the way sports media has boomed, I think they're they're they've practiced more. Um, I, you know, you're you're you've probably been 
interviewed by, you know, your, your student paper and, you know, local media. I mean, like I said, they're, it's, it's not as foreign to them as it would be back in the day. And I think you do, you know, I think you learn how to, I mean, you have to have something in your personality for, to be that honest and upfront with the media. But I do think there athletes now are more comfortable at it and better at it. And I think they see the value, you know, of what it can do for them, you know, whether it's endorsements or what, you know, as far as their, as, as far as their brand goes. They've had practice on and off the field, both with their football and then just the off the field stuff, like I said, with the holding themselves and uh, what everything we were alluding to in this, in this uh, talk here. So, but hey, Mark, this, this has been awesome. Um, I, I mean, anything else before we head on out about the combine? Like I said, I love the combine. It's always an exciting time for me personally. I love watching it. I love the coverage they do of it. Um, anything you want to bring up before we head out here? I think we've covered it. Although, you know, I will be, even though I'm not there, I am still going to be a staunch proponent of keeping it in Indy, but I, I'll be extremely sad if it, uh, if it goes elsewhere next year. Were you, what was the real quick, what was the reason for the bidding process this past off season? What, why were they, why couldn't it just stay in Indy? I, I guess because of money issues, because it has become more popular over the years. And I guess other cities wanted the revenue is that is that why well i'm sure that's it but it's also like you know why are they moving the nfl draft around it's because you want to you want to move around the country and you know like you know you'll have fans you know fans are allowed to attend these workouts you know like you know plus it is like a revenue it's a big deal for the city who hosts it i mean you're having thousands of people converge on your on the town but there's not a whole lot of towns like other than new orleans and indy i don't know a whole lot of towns where or san diego would be probably one where you could walk you can walk around um there's not a whole lot of towns that are as accessible as indianapolis on foot so hmm. that's why i think the coaches are such a big proponent of keeping it there well Marlo Rydenauer from a, uh, the, a contributor to the Cleveland Magazine. This has been great, Marlo. We really appreciate your time, and uh, we'll have you on again sometime, okay? All right, take care. Thanks so much. All right, thank you so much. We'll do it again. That was recurring guest Marlo Rydenauer. Now, let's head down to the south and talk some Dallas sports. All right, we now welcome on a special guest. RJ Choppy from 105.3 The Fan in Dallas, uh, co-host of Sean and RJ. Uh, how you doing, RJ? Doing well. How you guys doing? Great, great. So, uh, got back in January here. We had Bart Scott on ESPN uh, call the Dallas franchise a soft, or the Dallas fan base a soft fan base, saying uh, there's... A Specifically, referring, referring to the Cowboys, uh, they're riding on the coattails of the 90s Cowboys. Uh, they're always pointing th fingers uh, and never the thumb. I'm uh, quoting him. Uh, walking, around, walking around with a unearned bravado and um, just with a undeserved uh, sense of accomplishment is what it sounds like he's getting at there. What, what, do, you, what do you take from this? And uh, how, how do the Dallas fans feel about this accusation? Um, 
I mean, they don't really pay attention to Bart Scott. Um, look, I mean, he's paid to make waves and, um, you know, create headlines, and that's what he does. Um, you know, like, look, are, 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 are the Cowboys um, – are they are they as successful today as they were in the 1990s? No, absolutely not. Um, you know, but I would also say that, um, like this team is you know since basically 2004 since Parcells took over, the only time this team has had a winning season is when their starting quarterback got hurt. Uh, that's it. That's it. You know, there, there's been no seasons in there. Like that's that's fairly consistent uh, on the positive side. Yeah, they haven't won a title. Okay, um, like they also haven't had the best quarterback. Like we've we've been in an era uh, where increasingly it's more important if you don't have the best quarterback in the league, and by best quarterback in the league, I don't mean the absolute best, but I mean one of the best. If the Cowboys don't, then you're really going to be put in a tough spot to win. I mean, look who's won titles in the last twenty years. It's been Tom Brady, it's been Peyton Manning, it's been Patrick Mahomes, uh, Ben Rogers. A breeze, and then outside of that, you've had sporadic one-year blips. Flacco, uh, you Foles. Know, yeah, falls. I mean, you've got like sporadic one-year blips of guys that have come out of nowhere and won, uh, or you've had sporadic one-year blips of guys who have come out of nowhere, made a Super Bowl, and then left, like like Garoppolo, and you've never heard from them again in the Super Bowl. Uh, so, like, you know, if you don't have the best quarterback in the league. You got to flip a coin, and they don't have the best quarterback in the league, and they haven't. They haven't had the best quarterback in the league in 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 decades. So, yeah, is is he right that they're living up the coattails of the '90s? Sure, sure. Um, what are the Niners doing? You know, the Niners haven't won a title since '95. Uh, I guess it was '94 season, '95 Super Bowl. Yeah, they've been there twice. Okay, cool. So, and win. That's the, you know you're gonna get points for going to the Super Bowl. I mean, whatever. Uh, so I get it. I mean, he's he's doing what he's supposed to do. He's creating headlines. He got an opinion. I respect the opinion. Uh, but like like you know, people in Dallas don't really listen to what Bart Scott says. That I, I bet you half the people here don't even know who the hell he is. Where do you think the word "soft" soft comes from? Because I haven't heard anyone else say that about Dallas fans. I know I, I think Dallas fans definitely get that sense of accomplishment that might be a little um, over exaggerated in the last fifteen years. I, I guess for, from. Just again, I think people say that they ride on the coattails of past success as far as the Cowboys go. But I never heard of the term soft before. And I'm curious, did, did you hear anyone else ever use that phrase? Or was that the first time you ever heard that phrase mentioned about Dallas fans? Because when I think of Dallas fans, I think of very, very passionate, very loud fans. And I don't think the word soft would be really a word that I would use to describe the fans. Well,. Look, the further west you go, the kind of less hardcore the fans and media are. Like, they still watch, they're still passionate about watching their team. But, like, you know, they don't boo here. It's not like New York City or Boston. Like, they don't boo you for, for poor play. Like, you got to really be bad. Like, they don't have a quick boo trigger. Uh, so, maybe that's what he's referring to. You know, people here aren't calling for jobs, they're not calling for you know, the owners to, you know, fire the GM or fire the head coach. 
you know, as much as they would maybe in other cities, like in the East Coast. But, uh, I mean, yeah, it's not a, I don't think it's a soft fan. I don't think it's also not a, a, a rowdy fan base. It's not a hardcore fan base. There's a lot to do here. They're, they're, there's a lot of perspective, which can be good, can be bad. You know, they don't live and die with with the fan, with the team, the way they do in Philadelphia, maybe. Um, so it's a little bit different. You can't really compare it to some of the East Coast cities that, um, there's there's seven generations of fans for one team. It's just a little bit different. Um, you know, yeah. it's a, the, the whole mindset, the whole attitudes are just a little bit different here. Do you think a lot of that comes from the fact that the Cowboys are America's team and they're not playing up to the hype that you would expect America's team to play up to? So do you think a lot of that comes from that more Western mentality and that really they should have more of that East Coast mentality given that it is America's team and they, the, the fans really should be harping on the Cowboys more and expecting more out of them and not taking year by year and uh, without, you know, much of the uprunning from the, uh, from, from the front staff and the, in the Cowboys there. Is that, do you think that has something to do with it? Uh, maybe. I mean, look, I'll tell you, you know, in our experience, like the, like the Cowboy fans um, that live in, you know, Philadelphia, New York, New Jersey, something like that, you know, uh, D.C., Maryland, uh, th they come at us more for not being confrontational with Jerry on the radio than than fans here do. Uh, I, I think it's just where they live. It's the mentality of, of where they live and what they're used to with the local teams up there. Like, you know, the media up there is, you know, really kind of – they, they want to be confrontational. They go into – like. There are there are obviously shows and radio shows of these ghosts. They go into the interview looking to confront, be confrontational, pick a fight. Mm. We're not like that, you know. I, I think I'm 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 too, I'm too old to go into a, an interview, start trying to start a fight with somebody. It's like I'm just I'm not doing that. Like I just that ain't, that ain't my style. That's not Sean's style. I work with. You know, some people love that. Uh, you know, I like to listen to it uh, sometimes. But I also get annoyed listening to it because it's like, gosh, again, they're just going to do this. It's a fake fight. So, yeah, we found that, you know, a majority of the Cowboy fans that, that really kind of come at us for not being more confrontational with the team, you know, tend to be guys, uh, you know, fans who live on the East Coast. Yeah, it's almost, you know, it's funny because Philly fans, you, you, you say, for an example, it's almost that they want to see Dallas fail sometimes even more than they want to see Philadelphia succeed and it's, it's funny just how like you said it's interesting that you you gave that uh, viewpoint and the difference between the two between the east coast and the, then the more west you get is how just how different they are and what they expect from their teams and I think Dallas definitely expects a lot more from their team but I don't think they're as vocal sometimes as a team would be on the east coast and that's kind of what you were alluding to uh, against you know again comparing a team like Philly or Boston or New York to teams more you know Western Midwest they they expect a lot of other teams but I just think they get a bad rap and they get a bad misconception that they don't because they're not as vocal as some of the other some of the other teams throughout the country so that's a, that's an interesting way to put that but that's a I want I want to change gears a little bit not not tremendously we're going to stay on the Cowboys uh, Dak Prescott he's not. He's not going anywhere next year. I know people say that he might, um, or people say that he they wanted to go somewhere else. They wanted to see him gone, but 
Uh, he signed through 2024 with a no-trade clause. I mean, cutting him now would be $130 million upwards of dead money for, for the Cowboys, which we know Jerry Jones does not want. Um, but what what I know the I know the national media what they think about Dak Prescott, but what about the Dallas fans locally? What do they want him to come back? Do they do they like him there? Do they still believe in him? Say that he gets some uh, more wide receiver help. Uh, do they do they still believe in him in Dallas? Some do. Um, some I mean it's very polarizing. Like you you can you can look around and see a fifty percent. Love Dak and 50% hate him. I think we did a poll on the show a couple weeks ago. You want Dak back, and it's like 55, 45. You know, he is, uh, you know, Romo was like this too. Um, he's he's a very polarizing player. Uh, some guys love him. Uh, some fans like, dude, he, he won't get it done. So I, I can't give a, an honest answer on what it is because I think it's so so variable based on, on, on who you're asking. Like, there are... A ton of cowboy fans who want to see somebody else here. What's the what's the alternative though? I mean, like I just said, they can't. They Go can't. to draft. Go yeah. to draft. Yep, that's it. Like the, you know, the idea of doing the nobody wants to do the Indianapolis Colts route uh, and try to find the next uh, you know kind of washed up quarterback. Yeah, if, if you don't have if you don't have Patrick Mahomes, your only goal as an organization is to try to find one in the draft. Uh, and and good luck. Yeah. Well. 17 interceptions last year tied tied with Josh Allen for the most in the in the league um his his salary will contribute to 49 million against the salary cap this year so you're saying they might draft a quarterback under him and then maybe um develop under Dak Prescott or just completely just bench Dak Prescott next year I can't imagine that but what what are you hearing as far as in the Dallas Dallas area Oh, they're not gonna. They're not gonna bench him. They're not gonna bench him. Now, look. I mean, if if, if you know if C.J. Stroud falls in their lap, okay, they might draft him. You know, um, you know what I mean. Like something like crazy like that happens where you get a Green Bay Packers Aaron Rodgers situation. Yeah. Um, short of that, no, nah, I don't see it happening. I mean, there's been uh, you know a little bit of talk. Okay, maybe they're in on Hendon Hooker, who, who will probably be there when they pick. You know, maybe they they can wait for the second round and take him, but. No, they're not going to move on from Dak. They're going to give him. They're going to give him another year at least. Um, you know, Jerry is. Jerry's not going to move on from a quarterback. Jerry Jones is is too old to, um, as he says, I don't have time for a bad time. Um, he's too old. He's too old to start over. He's not going to do that. He wants to win another title while he's while he's alive. And you know, obviously, when you get up to you know, near your 80s or in your 80s, you have no idea. Any day could be your day. Um, and, and I get it. If I was in his situation, I'd be like, all right, you know what? I want to see another title while I'm still here. Uh, so let, let's just do what we can. Is that the right course of action? Well, it's been 30 years, so I would say it's not. But that's the only – he's he's, the, he's in charge. That's the course of action he's taken. But, no, I don't think Dak's going anywhere. To the best of my knowledge right now, they don't – they have no first-round pick next year. Is that correct? That's my knowledge. Like the, in, in, in this year's draft? Yes, this year. Yes, draft. this year. Yeah, they do. They got it's like 26, 27. Oh, they do? Okay. I thought it was traded away, but thank you for correcting that. So what you would say that probably a, a wide receiver then would be the most likely uh pick this year. The, the most likely uh aspect that, that they go after this year in the draft with their top I, pick. 
that's where I'd go. I'd go wide receiver. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna sink with Dak Prescott, at least give him all the weapons he can. You know, this team did a poor job putting putting offensive pieces around him this year. They gave him a running back that's being paid fifteen million dollars who doesn't have any legs anymore. Uh, they gave they, their first round draft pick was a uh, was an offensive lineman that wasn't totally a project, but also you know wasn't a step in and play day one and dominate kind of guys. Good player, really good player this year. Had a great year, but you know they got rid of Amari Cooper and. They replaced it with C.D. Lamb. The problem is they didn't replace C.D. Lamb. You know, they, they replaced Amari with C.D. They didn't replace C.D. They didn't replace his role. Um, you know, Michael Gallup was coming off an ACL. He didn't get it done. Uh, they have a good tight end. They got a couple of good tight ends. But, you know, they needed somebody. They needed more um, on the offense. I think they go with a wide receiver. That's where I'd go. Gallup with z- more zero-yard games than 50-yard games uh, this year. So, Definitely, like I said, I think he's going to bounce back from the ACL injury, me personally. I think Ty we, uh, Ty, T.Y. Hilton, excuse me, can definitely have a chance to have a back back uh, season. Um, you need, we know that the Cowboys were obviously interested in a wide receiver this year with the Odell Beckham Jr. drama. I mean, they were very interested. They didn't like their physical so much, but just given that whole ordeal and the storyline that happened this year they it's clear that jerry jones and the cowboys are definitely interested in a wide receiver so it'll be interesting to see what they do this year i do think as well that they're going to go for a wide receiver and i think the whole dallas fan base would also um prefer that and yeah we'll we'll just uh we'll see what happens there um let's switch uh, to byron jones uh this just over the weekend making the comments about uh nfl training staffs and um just not trusting them pretty much. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, I'm in quote unquote, uh, don't take the pills they give you. Uh, don't take the injections they give you urging people to take outside medical advice. Uh, just isn't happy with the treatment that he received, uh, from the medical staff over seven years in the NFL, uh, five and, uh, five in the Cowboys there. Uh, what, um, what do you take from his, uh, his comments, his comments here over the weekend? Uh, I, I was taken aback. I was stunned. Um, it sounded like he was retiring. Byron Jones is one of the smartest guys in the NFL. Um, and there, there is no doubt that he is feeling the effects of, of playing in this league. Now, I, I don't believe, and I don't buy his statement that, um, it was a injuries that I didn't foresee. Like, like, yes, you did. You, you know, you know what football is. You, you know what, what, what goes into play in this game. You absolutely foresaw the fact that you were going to be um, injured for the rest of your life. Basically, uh, you know, you know this. Ask any former NFL player, um, and and he played major college football. He knows uh, they have trouble walking. They have trouble thinking. They have trouble sleeping. They have trouble with back pain, elbow pain. And, you know, they have fingers that are misplaced. Uh, you know, like misshaped. I mean, like they've got tons of injuries. Uh, so he knew. I, I don't buy that. But listen, this is a nasty game, man. And I do not blame Byron Jones one bit if he never plays again. Uh, I think he's going to go on and do great things. He's a smart guy. He's probably going to be into politics. I mean, they call his nickname was the senator. Uh, so, like, I, it would not surprise me if Byron Jones goes into legislation and tries to fix uh, a lot of the ills that. Uh, that happen to former athletes and the lack of of care that they get later in life. 
He's going to go out and do great things. He'll be just fine. There are other guys that are not going to be as lucky as Byron Jones, other guys who aren't as smart as Byron Jones, uh, who don't know what they want to do when they get out of the NFL. Uh, I, I was floored by this. It, it, it sounded to me like it was a retirement speech. Apparently it's not. I don't know how a team is going to pay him to play um, when he refuses to take you know pain meds to get on the field. He's got to be perfectly healthy to play, and you're just never perfectly healthy to play this game. Well, it definitely sounds like he's what what he was treating out over the weekend and saying over the weekend definitely sounded like he was tiring. I mean, but retiring again, I'm quoting, but saying today I can't run or jump. Uh, much has changed in eight years. Uh, it's been an honor to play in the NFL, but it came to a regrettable regrettable cost. I did not foresee, uh, you know, no amount of professional success or financial game is worth avoidable chronic pain and disabilities. Kind of alluding to what you were saying, how it was things that he didn't really see happening or he didn't really expect it happening, but Hey, it's football and you know what you sign up for when you sign those contracts. So yeah, it, it definitely surprised me as well. And I, and I think it's interesting too, because we, we look at the NFL this year, how it's kind of a dichotomy between two, two sides of the spectrum here where we had some of the most concussions we've had uh, in a long time in the NFL this year. But at the same time, I think the medical staff was praised uh, this year and really had a spotlight shown on them with the DeMar Hamlin case. And so I, I just think it's funny that he's coming out this year saying the things he's doing as well as Michael Thomas just a week earlier, also calling the medical staff, you know, uneducated and cheap. It's interesting that they're doing these things now after the year, the NFL medical staff probably had the biggest spotlight and praise on them. Like I said, with the handling of the DeMar Hamlin case. So I just think it was interesting timing. Um, I know, a lot of people agree that football is violent and that it's a big toll on their bodies uh, while playing and then especially after they retire. But I don't think a lot of I never really heard anyone say like he did about the medical staff on the teams himself being uh, uneducated, not as not as good as the outside sources can be. So I think that was, that was definitely an interesting uh, uh, thing that came out over the weekend. It was. Um... You, you real quick, you, you just don't see it. You don't see um, players take shots at organizations for for how they do it. And he was clearly taking shots at two organizations. And you just don't usually see that. Um, if if things need to get changed, then you know it's a good start. But again, my point is, I just think it's interesting that in lieu of just the biggest spotlight the medical staff in NHL has, or yeah, NFL, excuse me, has probably had in the history of the NFL with the Demar Hamlin case, that he is still calling out the medical staff is saying that they're not doing a good job when the whole country and the whole world just saw that, well, they are very prepared to handle situations and that they might know a couple of things. And yeah, it was just uh, interesting timing. And there's an interesting saying um, and uh, things that he had to say all together. Um, well, RJ, this has been great. I do want to finish up uh, with just some Kyrie Irving talk while we have you here. Uh, as we all know, uh, went to Dallas uh, just a couple weeks ago on a, on a blockbuster trade here from from the Nets. Uh, Going to stay in Dallas for at least a year. We'll be a free agent after next year. Um, I guess uh, the biggest question I want to ask you is, given his, his history with, you know, bouncing around teams, uh, basically being happy until he's not. Um, you know, he went from the Cavs to Boston to Nets. Now, Dallas, jumping around a little bit, doesn't really ever seem to be situated or happy where he is, even though he says he's going to love where he is all the time. What, 
are the fans like are the fans excited to see him here uh or are they just like no he's you know a liability to the locker room and they don't want him what are the fans thinking about uh Kyrie Irving coming coming into town uh so far so good um you know the, like i said the Dallas fans they're not going to take the same approach that other fans, the New York fans would, or, you know, where Kyrie used to be or Boston, um, you know, the Dallas fans have a, have a, my guy kind of mentality. And uh, I think it's going to be good for Kyrie. Uh, the media here is, is not very uh, big. It's not very uh, angry. Uh, and it's not going to kind of push Kyrie. If Kyrie says he doesn't want to talk about something in New York, the New York media doesn't care. They're going to keep asking here. Okay, yeah, we'll just let him go and, and let him kind of run the press conference. It's a different world. It's a different world down here. I, so far, so good. I, you know, it, it's almost as if, if if you look and you listen to, you know, Sports Talk Radio here or, um, you know, when, when people can text in and tweet our show, because we don't take a ton of phone calls, um, it's, it's almost as if they're turning on Luca in favor of Kyrie. Like, he's the fresh honeymoon uh, and Luca is the guy that just completely complains about about getting bad calls. Uh, it, it's a really crazy turn of events in the last two weeks that we've seen. Uh, but the, so no, they love Kyrie so far. Um, there's very little um, anger towards Kyrie that we've seen. We, in fact, we've seen none of it. Uh, no, nothing to do about his, uh, you know, some of the comments he's made in the past or or beliefs that he holds. Um, I, I, I mean. We kind of laugh at the flat Earth thing. Obviously, the uh, the, the the anti-Semitic stuff that he gotten you know, that, that he had said earlier um, is. I mean, look, there's nothing you could say about that. It, it kind of is what it is. And he has one viewpoint of it, and you know, the rest of us have another viewpoint of it. And you know that we nobody has even brought that up here. Like, not a, not a single person that I've seen on social media uh, has even brought that up. Um, I don't know why it just happened. So, like, I, I think the fans are completely giving him uh, the benefit of the doubt and, and 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 taking the approach that you know, fresh slate. So, let's see what happens. And it's it's kind of it's crazy, but uh, you know, it's crazy that you know they've they've completely turned on Luke. It seems, but that's where they are. Um, and maybe it's maybe the team's better for it. And if are they are, great. Are you so, do you think he stays with the Mavericks after the season? Oh, uh, question. Agent. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, it wouldn't stun me. Yeah, uh, you know, if him and Luca get along on the court, um, off the court as well, uh, I think there's a good chance of it. Look, I, 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 I've been here long enough to know that NBA players don't sign here for whatever reason. I don't know why. They just don't. Uh, if given their druthers, they're going to go to L.A., Miami, wherever. Uh, if I was a betting man, I, I would still place a bet that he goes and plays LeBron. Um, that's my guess. Uh, but the first two weeks, there's been enough love for Kyrie from the Mavs fans to give me a little bit of pause in that thinking. Okay, maybe he is here, and Kyrie here, he can. Um, he I don't want to say he can hide, um, you know. But this isn't LA. This isn't New York. This isn't a basketball, you know, powerhouse. Uh, this is a. Um, you know, the Mavericks are basically a small-town team. It's a Cowboys town. The Cowboys are the Yankees, but everybody else in this town is basically the Royals. And and the Mavericks can – and a player here could kind of hide. And maybe that's what he wants. He can have the viewpoints he wants. He can have the um, – you know, the he, he, could, he could talk all of his flat-earth nonsense, and, and no one's going to challenge him on that because 
they just want to see him, you know, they just want to see him play basketball. Right or wrong, that's what the fans here want. Um, and, and maybe that gives him a, uh, a reason to want to stay. I read that, um, I know a lot of people are thinking that um, the Lakers getting, trading Russell Westbrook was an indication that the Lakers were making room, quote unquote, or so to speak, for uh, Kyrie Irving next year. And I don't know if you've heard that or if you're worried about that. I know that the Lakers would have to probably not re-sign D'Angelo Russell just to be able to afford Kyrie Irving with the salary cap and everything. But I, I think that's interesting. I mean, we know, obviously, LeBron picked Kyrie first in the All-Star game as well. I know a lot of people are talking about that as early recruitment and joking around in that nature. But uh, it is interesting. I, um, I think it's very true to say what you just said as well about the media in Dallas. I know we were, we've been alluding to it this whole interview about the media being so different between the East Coast, where he's been pretty much his whole life, maybe, except Cleveland, a little more West, obviously. But at least for the near future uh, with Boston and, and uh, Nets, he's uh, he's definitely been with a whole different media. And like you said, it'll be interesting to see how Kyrie responds to the media in, in the West, in the Midwest, as opposed to uh, the more hustle and bustle uh, East Coast media that like I said, we, we, we've been talking to, talking about this uh, throughout the interview. But I do want to just jump back real fast when you mentioned about how he has started off the season or started off his time in Dallas on a high note. Um, you know, isn't really saying many crazy things, if at all. Uh, hasn't really excited anyone in the locker room. Hasn't said, uh, been, you know, in the media at all saying things. But my question for you is, are you worried that that's how he started out um, other times as well. You know, when he was with the Boston, when he went to the Nets, he started out also quiet uh, when he first joined the team. And then we all know how things ended up turning out with him. Are you, are you afraid that he's kind of playing the field a little bit, getting his feet wet in the locker room and then getting more comfortable? And then once he gets more comfortable, then that's when he's going to really start to, to run his mouth again. Or do you think the media, again, just like I said, in Dallas is just so different that even if he does run his mouth it might just not even be as big of a problem as we've seen in the past when he was more on the east coast are you asking me to get inside the mind of Kyrie Irving <laughs> I don't think that's, I, I, that's, that's a day that's a that's a place I don't want to be man that's <laughs> that's a wild spot I um yeah I mean look can Kyrie hide out here in a way that he couldn't hide out in Brooklyn absolutely um is that Look, if you play for the Cowboys, can you do the same thing? No. You, like you know, like I said, the, the, the fans in, in DFW have two sports seasons. They've got Cowboys season, and they've got getting to Cowboys season. And all the other sports, be it be it the Mavericks or the Stars or the Rangers, the only goal they have, and we do this, we even do this with media, like you know, with us on the on the radio show. Like, even in the offseason, we talk Cowboys or football more than we talk any other sport. Um, and baseball is my favorite sport, but I understand that it just doesn't get the same play here uh, that it does in, say, you know, like New York City or, or Los Angeles or whatever, uh, Boston. So, you know, we do what the fans want. The fans want to hear football. Um, the, the old joke is, with baseball season, just get me to training camp. Be entertaining enough to get me to July 20th, and we'll never hear from you again. And, and now the reality is that when the team's really good, go to World Series, talk about it a lot. But we still, even even like, you know, if, 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 the, um, if the Rangers play a World Series game on a Sunday, 
you know, we're going to spend a majority of the day talking about the Cowboys' regular season game. That's just the reality of it. Um, and, and that's you know, maybe Kyrie can hide out because we don't talk about the Mavs as much as we do the Cowboys. Um, if this was the Cowboys, he ain't hiding anywhere. Uh, on the Mavericks uh, or, or one of the other teams here, he can hide out. It's just, you know, this is a Cowboys town. Boston's a, you know, Boston will really kind of equally give everything. New York's more of a Yankees town. Um, you know, L.A., it's really like Dodgers and Lakers. And then, you know, if you're on the Rams, you can, you know, even though they're really good, Travis, the Chargers can hide out. I mean, you, you, they can just hide away. If Brandon Staley is coaching, um, you know, the Cowboys, he's probably fired by now. Um, but, you know, he's not. It's a different world. They've got – each team has their – um, their own set of rules to play by here locally, and you know the Mavericks play by rules that the Cowboys don't play by. Yeah, and that that off the radar kind of mentality uh, with the Mavs. I mean, it might change if they win a championship, though. Uh, it's been a little bit of time, and I just want to know what what do they have to do in the off season if it's not this year? Which I don't think it is this year for Dallas. I think they they still have uh, some work to do in the off season with the Mavs, um, particularly just putting nice pieces around Irving and Luca if Irving does stay. But um would you say it was the defense mostly that the that that the Mavs have to fix up this offseason? I I know a lot of their top scorers, I mean Dwight Powell, uh Wood, Green, Hardaway, they're not known for a great defense per se. And and I know they have a big problem with their perimeter defense as well as as well as just their shooting. So I think if they can get some nice three and D players, uh, at least one or, or two to help supplement Luca and Kyrie, I think that's what they need. And I don't know from what from what you hear from the fans from the local uh, perspective if that's also what they think that they need in order to take this team to the next step. Well, I mean, it, it would it would help to keep Kyrie um, in the offseason. That would that would really help. I mean, look, they just get they, they need to get better. Uh, defensively, for one, it's a bad defensive team right now, especially after the trade. Uh, you know, quite frankly, they also need another star. Um, you know, two is is fine, but you know, like you really kind of want to have that super team. You need three, uh, especially when when two are perimeter players. You know, maybe you want one on the interior, but um, you know, step up defensively, that'd be great. Uh, they also, I mean, you know, they don't have any trade assets here either, really. I mean, their trade asset is, is what, Luca, And they're not, they're not going to trade him. Nobody wants Tim Hardaway. Uh, nobody wants Dwight Powell. Maybe looking for expiring contracts here or there, but they, they've got quite a bit of issues. But it all starts with, can they keep Kyrie? If they keep Kyrie, it's a viable you know, title contender. If they can't, uh, then their next step is not trying to find somebody else. It's trying to find a way to keep Luca because I do not think he is going to be long for this organization uh, if if they can't find a way to keep guys and get guys. Well, let me ask you this. Any, any, uh, I know you just alluded to it, but any specific contracts that you can see getting moved around or shipped out this offseason? I mean, as it stands right now, uh, with the, tax le- uh, the taxpayer mid-level exception, the Mavs, if the team stayed – Exactly the same as it did as it, as it is right now. The Mavs have seven million dollars to spend in free agency in order to stay in that exception, that taxpayer that's ta- that taxpayer mid level exception that, that I'm talking about. Uh, you alluded to it as well. They they lost their first round pick with the Porzingis trade this year. Um, like I said, between the names of Bullock, Green, Hardaway, McGee, Bertans, I mean, who do you see any of these contracts being able to be moved around, shipped out in order to make some more? 
room in the in the salary cap space and, and get that extra star? Or, or are they or do you really not see anyone really being moved out this year and kind of running it back again next year, given that Kyrie Irving stays? Uh, I mean, Hardaway is the number the one to, to move, but I mean, yeah, I don't know if you'd be able to move his contract. That that's probably gonna be a tough one to move. Uh, they're they're in a tough spot, man. Like they they've got to be able to find a way to keep Kyrie. If they keep Kyrie, they're gonna have some money. Um, but I was if they don't keep Kyrie, they'll have some money. But if they do, you know, they're gonna be they're gonna have to move some guys. Um, hard getting hard away off the books would be a big one. I think it's twenty million ish. Um, that, that would be really that would, that would be nice uh, if they can do that. But you know, good luck. This well, RJ, this has been great. Uh, we got we got to do this again sometime. We really appreciate your really appreciate your time. Okay, absolutely. Let's do it, man. All right, this has been RJ Choppy from 105.3 The Fan in Dallas, uh, co-host of Sean and RJ at 5.30 to 10 uh, a.m. Uh, in Dallas. So, uh, again, RJ, we thank you for your time, and uh, we'll, we'll do this again sometime, okay? All right, deal. That was RJ Choppy from 105.3 The Fan in Dallas. Now, let's head to the Golden State and talk some baseball with Jeff Fletcher. All right, we now welcome on Jeff Fletcher from the Orange County Register and author of Showtime, the inside story of Shohei Itani and the greatest baseball season ever played. Uh, how you doing, Jeff? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Good, good. Uh, we, we really appreciate you having you on, and we're excited to talk some baseball with you, and uh, specifically the Angels, and even more specifically uh, Shohei Itani with you in your, in your new book, or your book you had uh, from last year come out. Um Let's let's start with Shohei. Uh, record season in 2021, we all know, MVP, AL MVP. Uh, were you surprised? I'll, just, I'll start here, just with the general question. Were you surprised that he didn't win it this year? I mean, we know we had Aaron Judge, which made it difficult, and we a lot of people said that he was probably more deserving, especially on an offensive standpoint. But uh, Aaron, uh, Shohei Itani had arguably just as good of a season, if not a better season, uh, than he did even in 2021. He struggled a little bit in the hitting column, but his pitching was actually even better than it was in 2021. So I want to get your thoughts. Were you surprised about uh, his uh, his snub this year, or do you think uh, they got it right with Aaron Judge? Well, I, I would have voted for Otani. I think you could certainly make a good case for Otani because, you know, he had he's still doing something that nobody else is even capable of doing, let alone has attempted to do. And uh, for as great as Aaron Judge's season was, I think that still Otani's was just a little more historic. Uh, but I know that people sort of took Otani for granted after what he did in 21. So, and I think there was a little bit of a feeling of, uh, well, are we just going to have to give it to him every year if he does this now? And look, Aaron Judge did something historic also. So uh, I think that's basically what happened uh, with the voting last year. Yeah, and uh, I I read an interesting piece by a writer at CBS. Uh, his name is eluding me at the time. Oh, Matt Matt Snyder. Yeah, he had a he had a piece about uh, Shohei Itani on CBS, uh, just regarding his season last year and comparing it to uh his twenty twenty one year. And he made a, he made a really interesting point about sequels and movies how. A when you have a sequel come out for a movie, it needs to be it needs to blow out the original movie uh, out of the water. It needs to blow that original movie out of the water, or else people are going to think it's a it's, it's, uh, a non superior product than the original movie. So I think that was a good analogy that he made about Shohei Itani's season. How I think he had so 
after his 2021 MVP season, I think people just had so much high hopes for him and so much expectations for him that unless he did remarkable things, which is arguably not even possible after that 2021 season, I think people weren't going to see his uh, 2022 season as anything that can compare to that. So I, I agree. I think, you know, he's definitely doing something that nobody else has done in the past. Uh, be, uh, the only player in the history of all uh, MLB that has both an offensive and defensive um, uh, over three WAR, which um, I, I'll let you speak to more on that. But yeah, he's doing things that haven't been done since Babe Ruth and then doing even more uh, above that. Yeah, I mean, it's there's just nobody else that can be a front-of-the-rotation pitcher and a middle-of-the-order hitter at any level, let alone being, a, you know, one of the top ones in baseball. I mean, he was definitely a top 10 pitcher in all the major leagues, and he was probably a top 30 hitter. So that's just, uh, it's unprecedented. Yeah, so last year, uh, like I said, he, he dipped a little bit in his... Uh, hitting. Uh, notably, he had less home runs, uh, 46 to 34, comparing that 2021 season to 2022 season. Uh, but his pitching actually, like I said, did get better um, this year. And I I think it was obviously an offensive award this year. Aaron Judge won it, with his, especially with his breakout uh, offensive season this year. But uh, what do you, do you think, I mean, I, I am interested to hear your thoughts on where his progression is from here, because a lot of people like me, especially the more casual fans who might not follow Shohei Itani as deeply and not the end of this deeply even, they're, they're asking themselves, how can he even get better? Because how can he be even better than he is now? And what are your thoughts and what do you see that you're covering about his progression this year? especially after seeing him in his first game uh, this past week uh, in training camp? Well, as a pitcher, I think the only way he can really improve much is just throwing more innings, just getting deeper into games. So if you just avoid a, a few walks or are more efficient with your pitches or they just trust you to throw more pitches uh, and you get more innings, that would be better. I think last year he threw about 166, and if he could get that up to 180 or so, then that would be kind of the next step. Uh, offensively, he still does have some things that he could improve on. He, he still, I'm sure, would like to strike out less and, uh, you know, draw some more walks, hit for a higher batting average. Um, his OPS last year, I believe, was about uh, 850 or 870, somewhere in that neighborhood. And, uh, you know, in his, in his MVP year, it was 960. So uh, he definitely has a little room to, to go there. But, again, we're, we're talking about a guy who's the best pitcher one of the best pitchers in baseball and, you know, still having an OPS that's well above average. So it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, this year in pitching, he, his record was 15 and nine, uh, nine, uh, not, excuse me. Uh, ERA was 3.18, uh, in 2021, his ERA this year was 2.33, uh, 219 strikeouts this year, as opposed to 156 last year. Uh, we, we talked about the WAR, um, you know, 4.1 in 2021 and then 6.2 this year. So he's definitely making strides as a pitcher. And I mean, you said seeing those improvements really boil down to them trusting him more and putting him on the mound more. Uh, do, are they going to do that with him 
hitting as much. I mean, obviously being an offensive pitcher, or what do you what, what do you see from the coaching staff at LA? Are they really hesitant to put you know make him uh, put him on the mound as much because he is such a dominant hitter that they might need him on offense? Because I always thought that was an interesting dynamic with somebody like Shohei Itani who plays uh, both a pitcher and a batter. Not that there are any others really like that, but I, I always figured the front office and the coaching staff being afraid to pitch him a lot with for fear of injury because he does contribute so much to the offensive side of the ball. Well, uh, most of the good starting pitchers in baseball pitch every fifth day on four days rest. And Otani pretty much only pitches every sixth day. So at least five days rest. And, uh, you know, that is just kind of a, a nod to the fact that he's also a hitter. I don't think they're really going to go beyond that. Uh, maybe late in the season, if they're really in the pennant race and they really need him, uh, they could do it a couple times, you know, put him out there on four days rest, but he's never done it so far. So I think that's the only thing that might uh, change in the way he's used. So what was your first impression on Shohei Otani? Well, when he first got to the to the major leagues in spring training of 2018, he was not very good at all. Uh, he had a lot of things he needed to adjust to, and there was a lot of skepticism if he was really ready to be a big leaguer and and certainly if he could be a two-way player at all. But, uh, you know, once the season started, he cleaned up a lot of that stuff, and he was he was great. And then he dealt with some injuries between then and 2021, and when he came back in 21, he was even better than basically the uh, standard that he'd set in 2018. Well, let's talk about his early days. So uh, 2008, AL Rookie of the Year, which, I, I, based off what you were just saying, I mean, it wasn't a huge surprise by a lot of people because he has so much hype coming out of the or coming out of uh, Japan. Um, but you know, I, from your book, we know that there was quite a bidding war for him when he first came to the majors, and like I said, because of the popularity that he had coming from Japan. And I, I would love to hear you speak more on that, just about that bidding war, like the teams that were interested in him and what that dynamic really looked like. Well, it was a really interesting situation because normally when there are like top free agents, you know, the teams that offer the most money are the teams that get the player. But because of Otani's age when he came from Japan and some changes to the rules, there was a limit to the amount of money any team could spend on him. So basically every team from the Yankees to the Cincinnati Reds could afford him. So it wasn't a question of which team was going to write the biggest check. It was a question of which team could convince him that he should go there and that he could succeed there and he would be happy in the environment there and all of that. So it was more like a, like a college recruiting type thing than a normal free agent bidding war. So that was a really fascinating uh, part of the process. And so how did the angels eventually end up uh, persuading him? Was it the proximity to Japan being on the West coast there? Well, he did, you know, his seven teams that he kind of narrowed it down to uh, five of them were on the West coast. So it definitely shows that he, he had a preference to be on the West Coast. And then I think among those teams, you know, the American League teams had an advantage because they had the DH. And at that time, I don't think Otani really wanted to play outfield or anything when he wasn't pitching. So then you kind of you get it down to the Mariners and Angels. And I think that it was just, you know, Billy Epler and Mike Sosha and uh, all the Angels people really made a good impression on him when they had their meeting and just really convinced him that, that it was a place where he could succeed. Out of curiosity, what were the two teams that were not on the West Coast? Uh, the Texas Rangers and the Chicago Cubs. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you, 
it definitely just sounded like you wanted to be closer to home more on that West Coast. And uh, any reason that uh, Seattle couldn't get it? I mean, couldn't. Uh, what was it about Seattle, if you know offhand, just that didn't entice them? Uh, you you said the pros for the Angels, but were there any like specific cons for Seattle? No, I mean none that he really has talked about. So, uh, I mean, at the time, the Mariners were not a very good team. The Angels were not a very good team either, but he, he might have just figured that the Angels had a better chance to succeed just because of their market. I'm just guessing he's he certainly never said anything bad about the Mariners. And, you know, when his next contract comes up, I'm sure the Mariners are going to be right there among the, the most likely teams to uh, have a shot at him. Yeah, and I want to, you know, I want to I dig deep more into him now because I know your book also gets into his – uh, his training regimen and just what he has to do in order to compete both as a pitcher and a batter at such a high level. Um, and I, I would love to hear you talk more about what that, what his work ethic looks like, what his training regimen looks like. Cause both of those, it, you would argue are in a nutshell are full-time jobs, right? Training to be a pitcher and training to be a hitter are both things that people dedicate their whole craft to, and he's able to do both of them. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear just about his personality, his work ethic, and what he has to do during the season and off season to be able to do what he does, play both positions at such a high level. Well, certainly for everybody else in the major leagues, it is a full-time job to be either a, a hitter or a pitcher. Um, I think he's just really efficient in his work, and he knows exactly what he needs to do, and he doesn't overdo it, which allows him to – to be able to do both. Uh, you know, he doesn't take a ton of batting practice. He doesn't throw a ton of bullpen sessions, you know, like maybe some other pitchers do because he knows his body now well enough to know how much work he needs to do to stay sharp and know more because he basically, he's got to conserve his energy as much as possible. Yeah. And I would love, I want to ask you just to compare him to Babe Ruth. Cause I think a lot of people listening would be interested in that. And just obviously the, the times were a lot different. The game was different back then, but I, I just, and I don't want to leave you with too much of a general question here, but just, just comparing the Babe Ruth and just the difference of the times, the difference of the games, and just really like the, the marked um, thing that holds them separately from each other, that what, what really, why was Babe Ruth Babe Ruth and why is Shohei Shohei and just kind of comparing to them, especially in light of just how different the game was when they both played? Well, they're they're very different because uh, Babe Ruth basically was a pitcher who also happened to be pretty good at hitting. And then once he realized that he was a good hitter, he didn't want to pitch anymore. And there was kind of a, a couple of years that he was sort of doing both. He was sort of a fight with the Red Sox about they wanted him to keep pitching and he wanted to only hit. Uh, you know, he even like left the team in a little protest at one point because he he didn't want to do both. So that's obviously very different than than Shohei Otani, who came to the United States with the intent to do both as long as he possibly could, and he's trained to do both. And he would be upset if you took one away from him. Uh, so that makes him a totally different situation. And I just think that baseball in general now, there's so much more technology and the the level of competition. Is so much higher. I mean, you're looking at so many more people that are pulled from the pool that they get to be major league players that I think succeeding in the major leagues in 2023 is much more difficult than it was in 1923. So I think that that uh, really what Otani has done as a two-way player 
is more impressive than what Babe Ruth has done. Obviously, Babe Ruth is not famous because he was a two-way player. He's famous because he was one of the best hitters of all time. And certainly, Otani's nowhere close to that. So it's not that Otani's better has a better career than Babe Ruth, but just Otani's uh, time as a two-way player is more impressive than Babe Ruth's time as a two-way player. Has Shohei ever showed um, any inclination to what side of the ball he prefers, like Babe, like Babe Ruth did, like you just said? Um, I think that he probably sees himself as a pitcher first because that's sort of what his more uh, natural skill was. And, you know, when he was coming up through high school, he just figured he was going to be a pitcher in the major leagues. And it really wasn't until he started playing in Japan that he got the idea that he actually could be a two-way player professionally. So, and I think he's better as a pitcher than he is as a hitter. So uh, that's probably the number one skill for him, but he definitely likes hitting enough that he does not want to, uh, to abandon it. Um, what uh, do you think as age catches up to him? Do you think he ultimately will have to decide on one, one side of the ball? Yeah, at some point he's going to have to. Uh, I assume that, you know, just nobody's ever done this before, you know, in, in the modern era. So I don't think he can do it for 10 more years, but but who knows? I have no idea if it's two more years or five more years or eight more years. Uh, we're all going to be learning about it together uh, as we see how he, how he progresses. Yeah, and I want to switch, uh, sw- switch gears now to the Angels in general. So, uh, 74 wins last year, 73, if I, I believe, uh, didn't quite make the playoffs as we all know. Um, what, what, what do they have to do this year in the off season now as training camp begins and going into next year to, uh, get them to like a 90 win team, 95 win team. If, if that's, uh, what, do, what do they have to do in the off season, particularly positional wise, uh, coaching wise is what, if you, if you had to pinpoint one thing to put a finger on, what would that be? Well, their basic problem last year was they didn't score enough runs. Their offense was not good enough. And the problem, the reason for that was just they didn't have enough depth. So when they had injuries to some of their frontline players like Anthony Rendon or Jared Walsh or Mike Trout, David Fletcher, the replacements for those guys just were not major league caliber players. And so they ended up a lot of days with a lineup that only had, you know, four or five real big league hitters in the lineup. And it's really easy for a pitcher to go through if, you know, half the lineup is just not really major league caliber. So uh, that made it tough for them to score. So what they've they've done this year is uh, they added a couple guys, Brandon Drury and Gio Urshela, who play lots of different positions, and they're pretty good hitters. So now if anybody gets hurt, basically, they are going to be able to plug in these guys to, to fill the holes. So they feel like they'll be just a deeper lineup. And and even if, you know, Anthony Rendon gets hurt again, they've got Gio Urshela to be the everyday third baseman. And they they still have, you know, David Fletcher coming back from an injury, Jared Walsh back from an injury, Rendon back from an injury, all these other guys they didn't have. They feel like if they get better health from those guys, plus the new backups they have, uh, that's going to give them a much better chance to, to score more runs, which is the biggest thing that they need to, needed to improve on. So do the Angels contend for a wild card in the American League this year? They should. They definitely, you know, with six teams making the wild card, they definitely should be in the running for uh, for one of those six spots. I think winning the division with the Astros in the division is probably going to be too much to ask. Uh, they would have to have really everything go perfectly and probably some things go wrong with the Astros for that to happen. But they definitely have the the potential to 
to get to that you know 87 to 92 win range to make a wild card uh, i think that's that's definitely possible all right well this is jeff fletcher uh again writer for the orange county registrar and uh author of showtime the uh story uh inside story of the greatest baseball season ever played uh catch out on amazon and wherever else you buy books today uh jeff this has been great we really appreciate your time and uh giving us the insight with the show here his uh just incredible uh once in a lifetime uh talent that we see and then a, a little bit of insight into the angels and next year going forward as well we, uh, we look to have you on again sometime okay all right thanks for having me all right thank you jeff all right let's finish up the show Justin, NHL trade deadline. Who was your biggest move this past week? Well, one of the biggest moves is Jonathan Quick. First, the Kings traded him to the Blue Jackets, and now he got traded quickly to Vegas. So Vegas is going to have a goaltender now as they give up Michael Hutchinson and a 2025 seventh-round pick. It was a short stay for Quick with the Blue Jackets, but... He, you know, he's definitely got to get back on the on the right track in his career. Quick went 11, 13, and 4 with a 3.50 goal at goal against average and an 8 and a 0.876 save percentage for the Kings this season. He will share the net with Aiden Hill in Vegas while Logan Thomas recovers from a lower body body injury suffered February 9th. I think, Jonathan, I think that could be a good move for the Golden Knights. You know, they're they're in first place right now in the Pacific Division at 78 points. They only have a two-point lead over the Kings, who just dealt Jonathan Quick first. Yeah. Yeah, he was out of he he was out of blue he was out of Columbus real quick. <laughs> not to pardon not the not uh, pardon the pun, but yeah, he uh it's interesting because the Vegas Golden Knights they 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 struggled in uh, goalie uh, goaltending this year as we talked about with Chris Peters last week they 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 were not a great goaltending team this year I think their offense is what really kept them where they are now in first place in that Pacific division like you just said but yeah that that was definitely interesting I think Columbus is obviously Columbus is in last place one last place right now and all they want to do is just build for the future so as many trades that they can do to get more and more players i think is uh all they want to really do right now but um i think my biggest pick this uh this uh past week was patrick kane going to the rangers uh chicago obviously out of the playoff push they don't they they want to rebuild as well right now rangers though definitely are still in the playoff push and i think now with the addition of patrick kane a lot of people are expecting the rangers to actually have a shot of making the finals if not even winning the finals uh so i think that was a that was a great change and it was interesting because patrick kane earlier in the month uh back regular way earlier in the month back in um february 9th didn't even want to go to the rangers they weren't even on his his uh, radar but uh we know patrick kane wanted his no movement clause in his contract uh in the Rangers said that they would be fine with that, uh, with their deal. And uh, the, I know he also was concerned about his hip, but his hip is fine. It's, it sounds like, I mean, he just had a recent scoring streak of 10 points and seven goals in four games. So his hip is fine. Uh, I don't think that's really bothering him anymore. 
Uh, he found the team that he wants to be with. And yeah, I think he's going to make a great addition to the Rangers. And he's going to help the Rangers really make that playoff push and uh, kind of build on what the Rangers did last year in the playoffs. No doubt. I think the Rangers definitely, they're third in the Metropolitan Division right now with 79 points, just six points back of the Devils who are in second place and seven points behind the Hurricanes who lead the division with 86 points. So I think it's a good move for the Rangers. You know, maybe Patrick Kane isn't in his his prime like he was about seven years ago, I'd say. But I think this is going to be a boost for the Rangers as they look to contend and get to the Stanley Cup Finals out of the Eastern Conference. What do you think about uh, the Senators picking up Jacob Chikrin? I think that's interesting, too. Uh, Senators are... Uh, I, Senators I, I, are not too far out of a out of a playoff spot. No, with, uh, they're five points back of Pittsburgh. Exactly. I mean, they're definitely still in the hunt. It's going to be a little bit five, five points this late in the season might be a little bit of a challenge. But I think Jake, I think uh, Jacob Chakron is definitely someone that can help get them above that hump. There. I mean, he's a very good defensive player. I think people forget about that because he's such a he's he is a he he scores very well for a defensive player, and I think. I think that's actually a knock on him sometimes is because people think that he doesn't get back on defense enough or actually tries to spend too much of his energy on the offensive side of the ice. But uh, he, he can't stay healthy, so I don't know what the Senators want to do with him long term. Um, he He's never played a season over 68 games. Uh, you know, the Senators gave up a lot of picks for Jacob Chikrin. Uh, they gave up a conditional first round pick in 2023 and a conditional second-round pick in 2024, along with a second-round non-conditional pick in 2026. So the Rangers gave up a good amount of capital for someone who, like I said, doesn't really stay healthy and hasn't really played a lot of games in his career one season. So, yeah, I mean, the Senators are, I guess the Senators' goal this this season is just to make the playoffs and just kind of see what happens there. I mean, it. NHL is kind of like MLB in that regard. If you make the playoffs, anything can happen at that point. So that's the Senators' goal, and I'm excited to see what they do this year. Definitely. I think it's going to be an interesting move for the Senators as they as they look to get a playoff spot in the Eastern Conference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll just wrap up with the second half of the, second, of the NHL season just in general. Uh, Washington officially throwing in the towel. Uh, they... Got rid of Dmitry Olaf uh, to Boston, Garnet Hathaway to Boston as well, Marcus Johansson to Minnesota, Eric Gustafson to Toronto, and now the uh, Lars Eller is also uh, leaving Washington. So they Washington's definitely throwing in the towel. They were, as of even last week when we were talking to Chris Peters, were still in the playoff hunt. But I think after the, the last couple of weeks since the All-Star break ended, they, they no longer consider themselves in that position and they just want to rebuild for next year and in the years beyond that. Well, that's at the time this time of the year for, for hockey. I mean, these, you know, teams want to rebuild and just, you know, look towards next year for the capitals. I think that, um, you know, they could be fine next year, you know, Ovechkin, you know, he was, he was dealing with a loss of, of his father, uh, this past, was it two weeks, three weeks ago, he, left the team to uh, consolidate with, with family matters. 
And uh, I think Washington, you know, they could be okay for next year. But in hockey, that's that's the way hockey goes. You know, one year, you're out of it. And then the next year, you never know. You can be a Stanley Cup contender once again. Yeah, and we also got Grabagoff and Corpusalo to the Kings, which is also going to help their playoff push. I mean, the Kings are obviously well in it. Kind of like Vegas a little bit. Uh, good offensive power, but been struggling a little bit with the uh, goaltending. So it'll be interesting to see what the Kings do. But probably one of the biggest things that intrigued me uh, just since the All-Star break and in this trade deadline that happened over the week uh, was the Hurricanes got even better than they were. They got forward uh, Jesse uh, Polojari. Uh, and he's yeah he's going to team up with his old fin- uh, Finland national team teammate and Sebastian Ojo. Uh, like I said, Hurricanes already amazing. Uh, I, th- I think personally, they're not getting enough credit this season because of Boston and how well they're doing. But I think as of last week, I don't know the current standings. If you can help me out, Justin, if you, if you have it pulled up. Uh, mm-hmm. When we talked to Chris Peters last week, the Hurricanes were only seven points behind Boston. And Boston mm-hmm. was making huge noise about how they were going to be this team to break the all-time points record. And like I said, Hurricanes weren't even that far behind. So do you, do you have that? What are Hurricanes? How what are their positioning behind Boston right now? Well, they're actually thirteen points behind Boston right now okay, with so eighty-six points. Yeah, so Boston is going for their one hundredth point this weekend, and uh, and Carolina close to ninety points. Uh, they lost on Wednesday night to Vegas three to two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, now um. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I think I think Hurricanes are still a big betting favorite to win the the Stanley Cup playoff this year. Maybe not the favorite. I think Boston. A lot of people would still say they are, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm excited to see that what Hurricanes do in the off season here. Any other any other uh, takeaways for the second half of the NHL season coming up here after the uh, trade deadline? Well, the one thing I will say about Boston even is. You know, even though even though they're the number one seed and they probably will win the President's Trophy at this point, it's likely. You know, lot not a lot of teams have won the Stanley Cup, especially in recent memory, that have won the President's Trophy. So the Tampa Bay Lightning won it back in 2018 and 2019. They got swept by the Columbus Blue Jackets in the first round, and I believe the last few President's Trophy winners have not won the Stanley Cup finals. Yeah. Burnout. <laughs> hmm. That's it's burnout probably at that point. They do they do so well in the regular season and then when the playoffs come they have, I think a lot of it is burnout, like I said, and the expectation too. Uh they just they, they go they flame out maybe in the regular season and then on top of that, the huge expectations they have from the fan base in their own city and then fan base in other cities and hockey fans in general, and then they just can't live up to that with uh, their tired legs. And yeah, it, it's, it's, I mean, if I, if I was in that position, it's not really surprising to me that that happened. So mm-hmm. yeah, but, hockey uh, is yeah. to me, it's hockey is the toughest sport to win in. So basically, you know, let's say they get upset in the first round, you know, a wild card team could beat them. You know, one of the wild cards in the Eastern conference, let's say could beat the Bruins. I mean, that that would be that would be a very big upset, but this would not be the first time in the NHL playoffs that Mm-mm. that has happened before. So, and I believe it's the toughest sport to win in 
you know, not as I said, not always the best team wins in the NHL. Well, like I said, anyone you make it to the playoffs in the NHL, like I said, kind of like MLB, it's anyone's game. Uh, that's why I think a lot of teams, as we see with the Senators here, all they want to do is, I think the goal is to make the playoffs. And if you make the playoffs, anything can happen. You have injuries, uh, you know, a puck goes your way, it goes, or, you know, it slips past the goalie a certain game, or and you get that extra edge, or whatever it might be. Um, just playoff fatigue in general. It's anyone's game once you make it to uh to that to, to march so yeah it's uh it'll be interesting to see what what happens in the second half of the nhl season mm-hmm. all right uh, justin predictions this week so back to the boston bruins they got a big showdown on saturday against the new york rangers at home and i think the rangers and the bruins this game goes to a shootout and i think that the bruins will lose this game. They will have an overtime loss, or a, sorry, shootout loss to the New York Rangers by a final of 4-3. to three. Okay. Well, I'm going to pick Jordan Spieth uh, to win at Bay Hill this weekend. Currently three strokes behind John Rahm uh, entering uh, entering uh, the weekend here. But I, uh, I yeah, I think it, he's due. Jordan Spieth is definitely due. I know he loves Bay, uh, Bay Hill as a golf course in general. Uh, so I, I think that uh, Jordan Spieth is going to come away this weekend uh, uh, on Sunday and uh, become the champion of the Arnold Palmer Invitational. All right. Well, that was, uh, that was the show. Uh, we look forward to seeing you guys next week. And uh, stay, stay tuned.